Father, we do acknowledge you as the giver of all good things, uh, and that includes the sustenance that we need for the daily things of our lives. We gladly bring back just a portion of this this morning and pray that you would use it for the continued building of your kingdom, that even to the ends of the earth, Jesus might be made known and lifted up and honored in all things. In his name we pray. Amen. If you would, please remain standing and go ahead and turn in the scriptures to Colossians chapter 1. Just for a little bit of trivia there, one of my favorite books, chapter 1 being one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So whenever you're wondering what to preach on when you only preach once in a while, just go back to your favorites. Take advantage of the opportunity. So that's what we're doing this morning. Colossians 1, starting in verse 9 through 14. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Father, we have read your word, and now we turn to, uh, to some time set aside to focus on your word, to meditate on it. Lord, make us equal to this task Open our eyes, uh, give, us, give us an understanding of your word, illumine our minds, we pray. Touch our wills that we might receive it and choose to walk by it by your grace. And Lord, even touch our hearts that our affections towards your word and toward the things of God might grow. In the name of Christ we ask, amen. Please be seated. Who has ever made a New Year's resolution? No, I want to see hands. Who's ever made them? Now, who's ever kept one? Yeah, a few, a few. Percentage dropped <laughs> quickly there. Um, I'm not giving you a New Year's resolution, but I am calling you this morning to growing up in the faith. It's the kind of thing we should be resolved to do always. It's the kind of thing that is part and parcel of your salvation for the same work of Christ that earned your salvation has also earned your sanctification. That's what God is about. He is after worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He is making us fit for the life to come, not just for this life. And so we deal this morning with issues of sanctification, issues of growing up. Do not, I'm giving you the warning now, we'll come back to this at the end, but do not allow yourself to slip into the mindset of a legalism or some debtor's ethic where we pay God back or where we somehow earn his favor. Do not let yourselves go there. This is the privilege you have been called to when we talk about things like growing up in the faith. Now, there was a man named Charles Goodnight. I only learned of this man this week, actually. We, uh, I like watching travel videos and documentaries, so my house can be kind of boring to others. But again, I take the privilege of position sometimes and get what I want. And I was watching one on the West, and they mentioned Charles Goodnight, born in 1836. 
At the age of nine, he and his mother and stepfather relocated themselves from Illinois to Texas riding bareback on a horse at the age of nine. By the age of 11, he was the sole support for his newly widowed mother again. Okay, he worked whatever jobs he could find at the age of 11 to support her. At the age of 19, he went into business with a friend, into the cattle business, started doing fairly well, but it was interrupted by the Civil War, and he went off to fight. When he came back to Texas, the cattle had grown feral and had almost doubled in number, and they were everywhere. And so he got the idea uh, to gather them all up and go on a, uh, what they now call a cattle drive, which he is credited as being the inventor of, and drove many of these cattle up north to where the railroad was being built. And so he supplied northern people with cattle and beef because the price was so much better there than in Texas where they ran wild. He is credited with inventing the chuck wagon, you know, which, you know, necessity on a cattle drive. Uh, later in life, he lived to be 91 years old, and he, he earned a fortune, he lost a fortune, uh, he married a second time later, as you can imagine, he outlived his wife of uh, many years. And uh, he was actually portrayed, he was actually portrayed, or he was the uh, inspiration for the, uh, the, the novel Lonesome Dove, he and his partner. So there's the Charles Goodnight in modern, uh, in modern lore. What I was impressed by is the age at which he grew up. Sole supporter for his widowed mother at the age of 11. Times have changed. You know, now he was driven to that. What choice did he have? But he answered the call. He grew up at a young age. Now, even in my life, my, my grandfather started work at a very young age. Uh, he was towing sawdust around a butcher shops to clean them up and earn a few pennies during the Great Depression, you know, at the age of 8, 9, 10 years old. My wife's grandfather, who lived to be 100, uh, he, he left home for the first time to support himself, final time, I mean, at 15 years old with a couple dollars in his pocket and left Live Oak, went to Clearwater, got a job in a packing plant and, got it, and rented his own room. And then two years later, he moves to Fort Lauderdale where he got a job actually running cattle and delivering milk at the age of 17. He grew up. He grew up early, forced by his circumstances, but have not times changed? Have not times changed? Now, I'm in the position to where I, I occasionally hire young men or, or old boys, <laughs> as you can imagine. And I've had guys sit there answering questions in an interview, say, hey, you got in trouble with the law a while back. How do you explain that? Oh, I was just a kid. Now, he's 45 now, got in trouble with the law 12 years earlier. You do the math. He was a kid in his mind at 33. You know, so many of the guys I talk to, it's like they refuse to grow up. They see it as a negative. I'm just going to stay a child as long as I want to. They want to avoid the responsibility. There's almost a fear of growing up. I don't get that. I always wanted to grow up. I always wanted to drive. I always wanted to do what I saw as the privileges my parents had that I didn't have because of my age. And I knew that I had to take on some responsibilities or some things first to give me those privileges, but I always wanted to grow up. When we were raising our kids even, see, there's been like a societal shift against growing up. When we were raising our kids, I was told a couple of times, hey, 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 they're only children. And they were. They were. I assure you, they had times to play. They had times to have fun. But my answer was always like, look, I'm raising children to be adults. And to neglect to train them for those things would be abuse. 
Okay? There is a necessity of growing up. And so that's what we actually come to today. We're looking at a passage where Paul is encouraging a group of people to grow up. See, the church is not exempt from this problem. I actually, I was leading a small group one time, very small, just us and another couple. But at a point, this, this couple came to us and said, look, we don't want to study anymore. And I asked them, you know, obviously, why have I personally offended you? Because I can, you know, I, I hopefully am growing out of that, but I can be offensive I know that. And they said, look, we just don't want to know anymore. Because they were bumping up against the requirements. You know, if we learn this, if we know this about God's will or whatever, it's, it's going to change, have to change us. We don't want to. And they backed on out, never came back. They didn't want to grow up. Well, Paul is dealing with a group of people, and he is encouraging them to grow up. Paul's relationship with the Colossians was actually interesting because this is the only book in the Bible that is written to a church where Paul had never been, and Paul was not the chief founder. Most likely had never been. I think the evidence is pretty good. But yet when Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey where he spent three years preaching and teaching the gospel on a daily basis with every opportunity he had, there was a man named Epaphras who was one of his students, disciples, converts, whatever you want to call them, and he was from Colossae. And so it is surmised that under Paul's teaching, Epaphras was converted and grew up, went back to his hometown, and he preached the word to his people, and the church was planted. And we have to stop right there and just notice that it wasn't the superstar pastor. It wasn't the superstar preacher. It was the power of the word that was effective among the Colossians. Okay, we are just the vessels. The emphasis is on the power of the word that preaches. Not your latest superstar preacher. Does he preach the word? That's one reason. That's why we try to emphasize the word here. It's not the person that fills the pulpit every week, which was illustrated to us when we were without a pastor, remember, for three and a half years. Different person every week. But it's the same word, and it's the same God. And so the word itself is effective at planting the church and growing up God's people. That is the means he uses through the voices of man, yes. But it is the word itself. And it was effective in Colossae. But trouble came. You know, a few years had passed. We don't know how many, but a few years had passed. And there were some false teachings. There were some other things coming in, some confusion, some distraction from the pure gospel. And Epaphras got to the point where he was kind of beyond his ability to deal with it. And so he thought, I know a man who might be able to help. And he set off to find Paul, and he found him sitting in prison in Rome. He describes the problem. Paul realizes, look, a letter is not going to do justice to the entire range of things, but I'm going to send them something. And he wrote what is actually one of his shorter letters, and he just establishes for them a plumb line based on the doctrine of Christ that we find in chapter 1, by which they can measure the false teachings that they're hearing. Okay, and so if it does not line up with this, cast it out. And if I'm able to come to you, we'll deal with more things later. So that really is kind of the heart of the setting of the Colossian letter. He sent this just as a point of trivia, Bible trivia, so you can answer this next time you play. He sent this by two people as couriers, uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, you recognize Onesimus? Onesimus carried the letters probably through here because he was from Colossae to his previous owner, Philemon. And as he carried these, he probably also carried the letter to the Ephesians as well as to another city, Laodicea, which you see in Revelation, which we no longer have uh, that letter. So that's more trivia than you ever wanted to know. But I find it fascinating. 
all the interchanges there and how God is weaving and building his church and his people. So, Paul, showing his apostle's heart, which is a father's heart for the churches, uh, he, he then comes to this portion of the letter and he's telling us of his prayers for them. And in his prayers for them, he gives us a picture of what Christian growth looks like because basically he is praying that they continue to grow up in the faith for their own good. For their own good. He recognizes that to leave them in what is maybe a shallow, immature state is to do a disservice. And so he prays that they would grow up in the faith for their own good. This growth is God's will for us. And it's not only that, it's your birthright. It is something that you should desire. You should not want to be children forever. Don't you get tired of being susceptible to being tossed about by different waves of doctrine and different teachings and deceptions that are out there in the world? Don't you get tired of being just plain beat up by living in a life or in a world system that no longer fits you as it did because you're not one of them? You ought to desire to grow up in the faith. And that is Paul's desire for the Colossians. And he talks to us, or he talks to them. We're going to break this prayer down into just three categories, as you can imagine. We have to have at least three points. We have four, but I'm going to give you three categories to stick with the whole Trinitarian theme. He's going to talk to them in three categories because he's talking to the whole person. We don't grow up in just one area. We want to grow up the whole man, the whole person. So he deals with them in the categories of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathos. Now, you're familiar with the word orthodoxy, correct? <laughs> Technically, it just means correct opinion. Okay, But what we're going to emphasize here is right knowledge. This is what you need to know, ortho- orthodoxy. But when you jump to orthopraxy, we're talking about right practice. Okay, Because knowledge for Paul and what the Colossians needed to hear is that knowledge is not just secret and abstract and esoteric there, but it is supposed to affect your life. And Jesus came, God sent him, not to just save your spirit, okay, but to redeem a life, to redeem a person. And so it's orthodoxy, it's the right knowledge and it's the right practice. And then orthopathos is just the right feelings. The right feelings. Now, has anybody here ever felt controlled by their feelings? Overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with fear, right? And so it becomes a master if, if you give it its head, does it not? But in the right order, under the right influences, God is redeeming our feelings as well. And so it's not just the right knowledge, but it's the right practice and it's the right feelings as well. And this is all the gift of God as he redeems the whole person and causes the whole person to grow up. So these categories are all necessary. They're all connected. They're all well-ordered. And this is to be for growth in the whole person. So when we begin reading in verse 9, Paul is emphasizing orthodoxy. He is praying, he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you. And to ask for you, that's really more like we have not ceased praying and asking. It's like a continual prayer, not every waking moment, obviously, but the Colossians are on his mind and in his heart. We continue to pray and ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so note here at the very beginning that there is an assumption that the will of God is knowable and that there is an expectation that we learn it. The will of God is knowable. Now, most of us have probably always, you know, we, we all bump up against this. I want to know what God wants me to do today. 
I want to know what he wants me to do for my career. We break this down into some specific thing, and there I can't help you because there the word does not tell us. So we assume that the will of God is unknowable, but that's just going too far. That's a reaction that is not fair. The will of God is knowable. God has revealed his will for us. Now, they did not have the full scriptures, but God was revealing his will for them even then through the preaching of the apostles, which would later be committed to writing. We have a completed canon of scripture that is the revelation of the will of God for you. It is the complete revelation of the will of God for you. Not what job you should have, not what to name your child necessarily, but the will of God for you. And this God has made clear. He has made clear. You know, let's, let's just do a, a brief survey. You know, Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk before me and be blameless. Sounds like the will of God. When he's speaking to the Israelites and telling them not to intermarriage or have too many interactions with the sinful nations around him as he is purifying a people for himself, he says, come out of them and be separate. Walk in holiness. This theme continues. You go to the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4. You know, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. You go later in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and on. Pray without ceasing. Be joyful always. Pray without ceasing Give thanks in every circumstance. This is the will of God for you. Now, these are just examples or survey, but you can go through the Bible, and everywhere God has spoken, that is the revealed will of God for you. So Paul is operating under the assumption that the will of God is knowable. It is not hidden. It is the divine will. It is revealed from God and ultimately in the scriptures. But what God has revealed is for you and for your growth. Deuteronomy 29 tells us the secret things belong to God. But the revealed things belong to us. The will of God is knowable. The will of God should be pursued. The will of God should be studied. And so Paul begins by pointing us to the right thinking, to orthodoxy. This sometimes takes effort. Sometimes takes effort. Uh, I had one teacher that told me one time, I've probably said this here before, but diamonds aren't found on the surface. Okay, but diamonds can be found. Sometimes you just have to dig, you know. But what, what we do, how we deal with the word of God, the revealed will of God, how do we deal with the things of God says something about the work of God in us. And the neglect of it says something about the work of God in us. Okay, but God's will has been revealed. This is a divine will, and it is true that it is not discerned by the world in the same way because it is spiritually discerned. He ends this verse, and he says, Ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This word wisdom really has to do with just a general knowledge. It is knowing of the word of God. It is knowing of the things of God. But this word for understanding is then the application of that wisdom to life. And yet, they use this modifier, spiritual Because the things of God are not discerned, not known in the same way, in the same sense, by the world. But because of the Spirit in you, whom Jesus promised back in John when he was in the upper room with his disciples, he said, I will give you the Spirit, and he will guide you into all truth. It is a spiritual understanding, a spiritual wisdom. It is spiritually discerned, but it is for you, and it has been revealed, and the Spirit has been given that you might understand that you might be strengthened to follow, that you might grow in your convictions. So Paul starts up in the mind, and he says, we need the right knowledge. 
But he goes on in verse 10 and 11, and he very quickly turns the page because knowledge is never for knowledge's sake. See, part of the false teachers were emphasizing knowledge to the point that their salvation was based only on knowledge. And guess what? The false teachers had the secret you needed to know. So you needed them. And Paul says, look, God has made it plain. You don't need these false teachers. You don't need these people telling you there's a bunch of secrets that you have to gain to be a better Christian or to somehow move on in the faith. God has revealed his will and has given the spirit that you might understand his will. But he turns the corner in verse 10 and says, so that. This is the purpose of learning God's will. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects. He immediately connects it back to life. And the word there for walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, the word for walk, is really to just simply go about your daily business. It means to walk about, to trample about, to do what you normally do. But now with the spiritual understanding of the will of God, and how does that apply for me in this day, in this time, doing the things that I do and the relationships that I have, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him. Now the idea of walking worthy of the Lord... I warned you at the beginning, don't let this make you slip into a sense of legalism. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, but this is not to earn his favor. This is living up to your calling. This is your birthright. This is like being born prince of a realm. It's already yours by birth. But yet as you grow up, you learn the responsibilities and privileges of your position and you grow into it. That's what walking in a manner worthy is. That's like being, being worthy of the title, living up to. And you have been called to be a child of the king, not some earthly king, the creator of all things, the redeemer of the church. So we want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and that is somewhat synonymous with this pleasing him in all respects and all that we do, making it our goal to do it according to the revealed will of God for the glory of God. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Now, what does that look like? I mean, we say it's revealed, but Paul can't just say it has been revealed. The scripture hadn't been completed yet, so he's, he's adding to the scriptures here, but he's an apostle. He's allowed to do that. There are no modern apostles in that sense. Okay, Paul was. But what he does is he describes to us what this looks like. He gives us actually four characteristics or four ideas. They're actually, it's an, it's an interesting parallel construction of participles, if you care. But they're all these I-N-G words in English. And so what does this look like to walk in a manner worthy? Starting in verse 10, he says, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, strengthened or being strengthened with all power. And then down in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. So these four things we want to turn and just look at. Each one briefly, but we don't want to skip them. So what does the life look like? The life pleasing to him, the life worthy of our calling. One, it is bearing fruit in every good work. Now, we don't ultimately produce this fruit, remember. Remember Jesus' teaching, John 15? You abide in the vine and he remains in you. And apart from him, you can do nothing. But if you remain in him, you will bear much fruit. There's this connection to the, to the Father, the Son, the Spirit that leads us or causes us to grow and bears good fruit. So we do not ultimately produce it, but we bear what God produces through us, and we are often his means in these good works. But that does not mean we don't work at it. We're not entirely passive in this, as with everything in our growth or in our sanctification. We do not remain passive. 
Remember Philippians 2 when he says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling because God is at work in you. So there's that sense of partnership here. We still give effort. We still give ourselves to the task. Okay, but ultimately it's God who produces the growth. But he pairs this bearing fruit with the next one, this increasing. Back in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. These two are tied together, I believe, for a purpose. This increasing in the knowledge of God or growing in the knowledge of God, some translation says. This is a... Part of the doing of this life we are to live still emphasizes knowledge. still emphasizes that we study, we learn. But there's a circular relationship to these two things here. As we learn, we also learn how to apply. But taken together, I believe the apostle's painting us a picture here. And he's painting us a picture of a fruit tree. Now, I'm not a farmer. Don't know much about farming. But I know that when you plant a grain, a grain has to die before it grows and produces more grain, Right? And then each of those grains has to die before they can produce something. So there's a death involved. But a fruit tree is not the same thing. A fruit tree grows. Roots go down, tree grows up, and eventually bears fruit. And then the fruit falls off. The tree dies or at least goes into sleep and then comes back again. So there's these cycles of growth and productivity, growth and productivity, on and on. I think that's the picture that he he is showing us here. It's a circular relationship. As we learn, we apply, and taken together, we're looking at this picture of a fruit tree. I think Paul's got in mind here Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Mind. In this law he meditates day and night, and then what? He will be like a tree. Firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Paul has given us this picture of vitality, of health, and I believe he's got Psalm 1 in mind as he's doing this. As we grow, we have seasons of fruitfulness, and then sometimes we have seasons of not as much fruitfulness, but we continue growing. There is a growth that is not always visible, and then there are seasons of fruitfulness. And the idea is that we can be more and more fruitful as we continue to grow, and that should be desired, these cycles of growth and fruitfulness. So, what does it look like? Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing or growing in the knowledge of God. Number three, verse 11, strengthened or being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Strengthened or being strengthened. This is not pointing us to a self-reliance. This is not one of those pull up your own self by your bootstraps and make things right or do something good. But this is an expectation that because God is at work, we will continue to grow in the strength of our convictions and our character by the Spirit. One example here would be 2 Timothy 1.7 and by the Spirit, because Tim, Paul says to Timothy, we have not been given a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of power. The word for power there is the same word that is used here for being strengthened with all might. Okay, We are not given a spirit of fear or timidity or of drawing back, but of power. And here Paul is saying, I pray that you would be strengthened by the Spirit. Why? For the reason. For what purpose? I love this. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. For the attaining, 
Does that sound like a little bit of a letdown to you? I mean, we want power that we might storm the gates of hell. We might power that we might speak to crowds of thousands. You know, we want power to do these great deeds. And yet he says here he wants us to be strengthened with power that we might simply have good character. Okay, steadfastness and patience. These words basically mean things like endurance. To be strengthened with all power that you might endure. That you might consistently go about your business. This walking, this trampling. Okay, and patience, the whole idea that we would continue to endure, that we would, that we would show this perseverance even under pressures. Under pressures, whatever these pressures might be. It might be that these pressures would be suffering, trials, persecution, loss, but in all these things we bear up under it. That's the character he's looking to develop. That's where he hopes that you are to be strengthened, that you might not be so easily tossed back and forth by different winds of doctrine or different trials that come your way, but that you might have a solidity, a maturity of Christian character. It is bearing up under the load. And notice, if you haven't already, that the emphasis in these sections so far are on character. The walk of ordinary life as you trample about and go about your business, not necessarily storming the gates of hell, not crossing oceans, not giving yourself to monasticism or sitting on a pole or hiding in a cave, none of these things that maybe people look at and say, look at his devotion, what great deeds. No, this is the ordinary, but this is character. And it is also an emphasis on character over gifts. Now, here's, here's the danger. Here's where the, the church messes up sometimes. We advance people of gifts who do not necessarily have the corresponding character. Okay, But yet Paul is saying that it is advancing Christian character and it is a solidity of Christian character. That's what denotes maturity. Not gifts. God gives each of us gifts for the good of the body. But when he tells us to choose people for elders or for offices in the church, he points to character. And Paul is praying that they would grow up in their character. So, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory. Now, your translation might vary there. Mine says according to his glorious might, according to the might of his glory. This is a different word than power, uh, and actually I think the person who would explain this best would be Dr. Professor Glodo, who was here last week. He talked a lot about the glory of God. So this is the measure of the power within you, the measure of the might that God gives, but he, we're appointed to the example of God's glory. And where was God's glory manifested, in the Old Testament anyway, according to Dr. Glodo? Sinai. But what happened to Sinai when God came down? The earth shook. Thunder pealed. Flashes of lightning so much that the people were afraid. Later, the glory appears in the tabernacle to the point that the priests can no longer do their work. Or at the dedication of the temple when the glory of God shone so much that the service had to be suspended. Because they all had to fall on their faces. The glory of God. That is just an example of the measure of the might and the power that God has working on your behalf. Strengthened with that kind of power that you might grow up in the faith. And then, the last part of this picture that Paul is painting for us. Sorry, I got distracted by all the peas. I didn't mean the alliteration there. But part of the picture that Paul is painting is that we are to be people of thanksgiving. 
We are to be people of thanksgiving. Thankful. Thanks to the Father, he says in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, this ultimately is the work of God. He's the one who brought you in the door and adopted you into the family, but he's the one also providing all that you need that you might grow up in the faith. And this is to result in the giving of thanks to the Father. We are not only saved, but we are being sanctified. Sometimes through pain, yes, but even there he provides, does he not? He gives us the power to see it through. He gives us the power to take the next step, and that may seem ordinary, but it is the power. It is according to his glorious might, the appearing of his glory. So not only saved, but being sanctified, sometimes through pain, but with thanks. It is the realization that God is in the business, not just of saving, but of building, of growing, of disciplining, of training us. And it's all a sign of his love for us, and that ought to overflow in the giving of thanks to our Father. Who's heard of Amy Carmichael? I want to see hands. Okay. Amy Carmichael was a missionary from Scotland who went to India, and once she arrived in India, stayed there for like 54 years with never taking a furlough. Interesting. Fascinating biography. I think it was written by Elizabeth Elliot. I don't really remember, but that sounds familiar. <laughs> Called A Chance to Die, if you have an interest. I found the first chapter, at least on this topic, to be fascinating. She talked about growing up, her childhood, in her parents' house. And in her parents' house, she took a section and described, here's what discipline looked in my parents' house. And five different levels of discipline, each one chosen based on the the, the weight of the crime. But as part of the discipline, whatever it would be, she described it like, like one of those disciplines might be having their hand slapped with a ruler. Okay, They were not allowed to cry out. And when they was after it was administered, they had to thank their parents. Okay? Now... At four years old, seven years old, they don't understand that. But we're supposed to be growing up. Okay? And so, but what a picture that teaches, what a seed that plants even in that child of what it means to be thankful to God. Because sometimes in this process of disciplining and training and growing us up, there is pain. But yet when we trust in the essential goodness of God, and what else should he have to do to convince us of that? So when we trust in the essential goodness of God, we ought to be able to thank him even for the strokes. Now, I say that carefully. I have not suffered. Okay? But I can declare it with confidence because I believe it to be the will of God. Can you thank him even for the strokes? Knowing that he is at work to will and to work for his good pleasure and for your good as his child. So giving of thanks. Now I skipped a word. If you're a bookworm paying close attention, you'll notice I skipped a word. What's the word? Joy. Joy. This word is kind of, it's actually interesting here because there is a debate, and I checked several commentaries. I mean, once you, once you translate this thing and you know it's joy, <laughs> where does it go? What does it modify? What's it connected to? Some said it was connected to the attaining of all steadfast and patience with joy. Some connected it joyously giving thanks to the Father, and it's a little more emphatic. Grammatically, I believe it goes with the joyously giving thanks to the Father. Because there is, there is a difference, is there not, in saying thank you? You know, when Amy Carmichael was four and she said thank you, she was doing it as part of being trained. She didn't get it. But as we grow up, we're supposed to be able to say thank you to the Father with joy. As we walk about our daily lives, this, this, 
this steadfastness and patience, and we run into trouble. We give thanks, but not gritting our teeth. We do it with joy. This is not putting on some shallow smile or expression of faith, but we do this with joy. There's a depth here that we can rejoice in all that God is doing because it's God who is at work. And it's God, as he says here in verse 12, who has qualified us to share in this inheritance of the saints in light. It's him who has worked in the first place and done all things necessary for us, for our growing up. So whether bearing up or giving thanks, we do so with joy. And joy is hard to fake. You find a Christian who's lived any number of years and who has a certain amount of Christian experience, whether as a missionary or as a teacher or as whatever, to where they have suffered pain and loss. And yet that person has a joy in knowing that God is for him and working all things out together for his good. That can't be faked. And there's a Christian with some maturity. Joy in the midst of this. Not just thanking, but thanking with joy. An emphasis on joy. Now, again, I'm not that person either. I have a long ways to go as I'm working at growing up. I remember recently a video of a question and answer service at a conference really at Westminster Seminary where it was uh, Tim Keller and Sinclair Ferguson just answering questions. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson got asked about the, the Scottish church. And the Scottish church, he said, recently, he said it's like for years and decades that the, the, it's, the, the mountain has been being dug out underneath the Scottish church by waves crashing against it as far as liberalism and secularism and the church is failing. He said recently it's like that finally caved in. And so he was talking about the persecutions to come from the secular civil government against the church, which are already coming, but he expects to get worse. But what struck me is he said, you know, it's exhilarating in some way. Exhilarating. He said, we might be counted worthy of suffering for the gospel. See, to me, there's a mature Christian who's gotten past the point of just thankful, but thankful with joy at all that God may be doing, even what he sees coming that might It's like about to run into a wall, right? This could hurt. (laughs) Exhilarating. So I'm not that person. So as you can tell, we've now crossed the line. We had our three different things. We had orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and then orthopathos, which is feelings. We've crossed the line into our feelings, gratitude, and especially with joy. I think Paul puts this here last And it's appropriate that it's last. He has an emphasis on knowledge, which is consistent with his teaching in Romans 12. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to put things right in our heads because we have grown up wrong-headed. And yet God comes and he begins to straighten us out. And so he says, the emphasis is on the mind. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then put it into practice day by day. And then the feelings will follow. This is something the Women's Refuge teaches and teaches very well to their people who come, their residents. Feelings will follow. All parts of us are being renewed. Our our thoughts, our will, our practice, and even our affections. It says, but it's best that uh, these feelings follow because they'd make a terrible master. And so Paul doesn't only talk about renewing us in the whole man here. He puts things into proper order. And I think there's a lesson there as we learn to speak to our hearts rather than listen to them so that our feelings do not become our masters. So now we come to the point. I want to go back to the beginning, the warning I gave you. As sinful people, whenever we focus on issues of sanctification or the pursuit of holiness, it's very easy to slip into a sense of legalism, as if we have to do all things to earn these things from the Father, or... A little bit better, but still wrong, or to pay him back 
which is a debtor's ethic, but still leads to an attitude towards our father that is not healthy. Because then this is what we have to do. Nobody likes have to do. Okay? So, Paul does not allow us to go there, though. But he reminds us of the gospel. He's already told us that we give thanks to the Father with joy who has qualified us. Notice the completed nature of that verb, who has qualified us. This is the work of God who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. When you go to verses 13 and 14, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This language, just briefly, rescued, qualified, transferred. The idea of rescued means that you were helpless. You needed rescued. You were entrapped in the domain of darkness, apparently. (laughs) You were trapped there, and you had no way out. And yet God has effected your rescue. The word transferred here is actually like a transfer, a wholesale movement of a group of people. So in the Old Testament, you would see when Assyria came in and and wiped out the northern kingdom, what did they do? They took the people as a whole and transferred them to different parts of the empire. And we see that again when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem. They took a wholesale transfer of a population and moved them. Well, God has taken a wholesale transfer of his people and brought them back. Okay, rescuing them from the domain of darkness and transferring them, his people, back to or into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then having mentioned his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The cost of your sin has been covered. You've been bought with a price by the blood of Christ, just like a slave in the slave market, for the purpose of setting you free. And this redemption, dramatically, redemption is equal to the forgiveness of sins. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means to be set free from your sin. It's penalty. It's power. It's cost. And God has done all this. He has rescued us. He has transferred us. He has qualified us. And he's done all this through the person of his son in this forgiveness of sins that he has wrought at great cost to himself. So he has qualified us. He has rescued us. We have redemption. We need to believe this gospel. We need to believe it more. It's not that we need to believe more gospel. We've been given the message. You've heard it preached that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins for anyone who will trust in him. There's the gospel. We need to believe it. We need to believe it more. We need to believe it with stronger conviction. We need to let it affect us on a daily basis. We need to cling to this work of God for us. We must remember, as we read from the confession earlier, that our sanctification is a part of our salvation. He didn't save you and set you free to go live the same sinful life you did before. He saved you and is setting you free from what used to enslave you, that you might walk in a manner worthy of your high calling as children of the high king. We need to remember this. We must pray this prayer for ourselves. But we don't walk only by ourselves. We must pray this prayer for one another in this coming year. We must work out our salvation in fear and trembling because God is at work to will and to work for his good pleasure and for your good. So let's grow up. Let's grow up together, but let's definitely work. Let's grow up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We pray that it would not become slavery to us, Lord, but exhilarating, that you might lead us onward, forward, and upward, and transform us 
from what we were to what we will be. Lord, this is your work. Make it so, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.